If you have your Bible or Scripture journal, I hope you do. Luke chapter 1, jump down to verse 57. In your Scripture journal, this will be page 14, okay? By the way, if you don't have a Scripture journal, you want one, help yourself. These circular tables at the back here have them. Welcome Desk has them. A bookstall has them. Uh, so grab one if you don't have one and you want one, okay? And we're continuing our series through... Uh, the Gospel of Luke gets lined up with Advent. Of course, we're going to get the birth of Christ next week. And then um, after Christmas, we're going to just keep going through Luke. All right. So today, we're going to be in what's commonly known as the Benedictus. Uh, you remember the Magnificat that we covered last week is called that because the first word um, in the Latin translation of Mary's song is magnify, Magnificat in Latin. Same thing here. The first word in Zechariah's song is blessed, which is Benedictus in the Latin. Uh, so we're going to be in 57 through 80. It'll be behind me on the screen as well in my translation. So let's go ahead and read this. Luke and chapter 1, start in verse 57. God's word says, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. <coughs> and on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and he wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors and all these things were talked about through the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel." Amen. This is God's word, and may God write its eternal truths on all of our hearts. <coughs> it's hard to believe, isn't it, that Christmas is only two weeks away? Can you guys believe that? Didn't it seem that 2020 lasted like a decade, and 2021 has been like a month, right? This season, do you agree with me, pretty overwhelming? You guys feel overwhelmed? Um... At least that's how I feel. Uh, the hustle and bustle of it all, the preparations that need to be made. What I try to do, even in all this hustle and bustle, is still carve out time for traditions to do 
as a family that we do every year. And I hope you've done the same. Surely your family has certain, yes, Christmas traditions, Christmas season things you are sure to do. Well, one of my favorites that my family does, your family probably does this as well, is uh, we watch all the Christmas movies that we can, okay, um, leading up to Christmas Day. We start in about November, and, and when we find time, we watch a Christmas movie. Uh, you guys do this too? Well, shout out some of your favorites. What did you say? Santa Claus, a classic. All the Hallmarks, is that what somebody said? <laughs> All the Hallmarks. It's basically the same movie, just with different actors, right? What are some other ones? I'm Alone. Elf. Grinch. Okay. When it comes to talking about Christmas movies, there's been a debate about that has raised for a few years. You guys know where I'm going, right? I alluded to it briefly last week, which is the question whether or not Die Hard should be considered a Christmas movie. Now, how many of you think that Die Hard is a Christmas movie? Matt's with me, and he's the only one. And how many of you don't, i.e. you're wrong? Okay. Well, fear not, friends, because I am here to give you the answer. Die Hard is, in fact, a Christmas movie. And I'm going to give you five reasons why. All right, you ready? For one, it takes place during Christmas, like Home Alone, right? So if we're going to consider Home Alone a Christmas movie, Die Hard is too. Second, Die Hard features many classic Christmas songs all throughout the movie. Third, Christmas is essential to the plot. Without, without, there's, without Christmas, there's no plot. Fourth, you weren't ready for this. I have stats, all right? <coughs> According to a press release from Dish Network, in 2017, more people watched Die Hard on Christmas Eve than Miracle on 34th Street, Home Alone, and Santa Claus. Fifth, many of the themes of Christmas are present in Die Hard, such as the fact that the main character, John McClane, is a weary traveler, like Mary and Joseph were, the fact that there's a pregnant woman in the movie, the story is about someone saving people from the forces of evil, who have held people hostage, right? Like how Satan and sin have held people hostage and they need outside rescue to be freed from it. You know, I could go on and on, all right? But that should suffice, and I imagine all of you are convinced, yes? Okay, maybe I was reaching with some of those, all right? But while I still maintain that Die Hard is a Christmas movie, I don't recommend that you add it to your Christmas list anytime soon, okay? And while the writers of Die Hard weren't thinking of ways to allude, I don't think, to the incarnation of Christ in that movie, there's a theme in the movie that other Christmas movies don't have. Namely, that people are rescued from a bleak situation when it seemed all hope was lost. Most Christmas movies fit the same basic mold, don't they? which is that the message of Christmas is mainly about gifts or good cheer or charity or family or the spirit of Christmas or happiness or any number, any other number of things. They are rarely, if ever, bleak. Is that fair to say? And there's rarely any notes of the necessity of rescue from darkness. That, that may be too much of a buzzkill for what we've come to expect from Christmas entertainment. 
What Christmas movies mostly miss is that Christmas tells the story of a people under oppression of worldly and spiritual powers. And they seemingly have no hope of salvation. And if salvation were to come, it would need to come from outside of themselves. The story of Christmas tells of a long-awaited hope of rescue. It tells us that out of darkness came light. And that the pain and slavery of the age is coming to an end. What Christmas movie even hints at that? Truly. But these things are precisely what Zechariah understands. And what he sings about. And so in our text this morning, we're going to see primarily four points, okay, about this. <clears throat> Let's first observe point number one, how Zechariah's silence is a picture of Israel. Zechariah's silence is a picture of Israel. So the scene opens about three months after where we left off last week, okay, with Luke telling us that Elizabeth has given birth to John just as God said he, she would through the angel Gabriel. And perhaps you notice the environment in which John is born is a bit different than how we do things in our culture. Do you notice that at all? There is always great rejoicing, of course, when a baby is born. And again, Gabriel said that more than just Zechariah and Elizabeth would rejoice, but many would rejoice at John's birth. And we see this clearly in the text here, don't we? The whole town, right? The whole town has seemingly come to see the birth of this unexpected, miraculous child. You know, our culture, we of course rejoice also over the pregnancies and birth of a child. We even created new, right, and different ways to ring in the occasion of a new baby. We have baby showers, right, where, ba- where friends come, give gifts, gender reveal parties, right? where the couple uses sometimes elaborate means to uncover the gender of the new child. If you live in California, this means you start a forest fire. Silent and I used a pinata for Augie's gender reveal, and that's only because I couldn't convince her to let us get a gender reveal lasagna that had blue cheese, all right? But in any case, those things like baby showers, gender reveal, they happen before the child is born, typically, right, reserved for family and friends. And so it it isn't like this huge circle of people. And you don't invite the whole town, right? And when the baby is born, even less people are actually showing up to the birth and the subsequent hospital stay. These are times of privacy for the parents and siblings. Can you imagine if the whole town tried to show up in the hospital room when you were going into labor or even right after the baby is born when you're exhausted? For us, that'd be pretty weird. Right? But the culture surrounding the birth of John is very different. Elizabeth finally gives birth to this baby that was promised through the angel Gabriel. And Luke tells us that not only did relatives come when the baby was born, but the neighbors just came. Right? <coughs> so unlike our culture that cherishes, cherishes privacy, the birth of this child was a community event. A community celebration. And everyone was, verse 58 rejoicing with her, and verse 65, filled with fear and awe and wonder at what God was doing through this couple and their new baby boy. And this fulfills what Gabriel said in verse 14, that many will rejoice. But understand that more is happening here than meets the eye. 
John's coming means more than some townspeople's rejoicing at his birth. The coming of John as Jesus' forerunner means that Jesus is coming, right? Jesus is coming, the Messiah is coming, and it's because of what he will do, the Messiah, that many will rejoice. This is no private affair reserved for one couple or one family or one town or even one nation. Many will rejoice because what Mary said in the Magnificat is coming to fruition through Jesus and what Zechariah says in the Benedictus is coming to fruition through Jesus. Is this not what Zechariah says in this song from 67 to 79? The very first thing he says is, Blessed be the God of Israel, but why? For he has visited and redeemed his people, a people. The effects of what is happening in their midst are far-reaching, further than any of them know. But then we see this interaction with Elizabeth and the people. This is always kind of comical to me and Zechariah. Elizabeth says his name will be what? John, in obedience to Gabriel's word, to Zechariah. But the people are perplexed, right? No one in your family is named John. Shouldn't you just call him Zechariah Jr., right? Elizabeth holds her ground, and she, she may be more patient than we would be, right? Who would perhaps inquire on who asked the peanut gallery, right? Who asked these people's opinions on what the name should be? But Elizabeth says, he shall be called John. Then the people play an ancient game of charades to see what Zechariah will say. And the question is, okay, this is the question in front of Zechariah. Will Zechariah give in to the customs and the peer pressure? Or will he be obedient to God's word? Right, isn't that the question before him? They're like, the custom is you name it after a relative. This is outside the norm. But he's been given a command from the Lord. So what will he do? The people say, this is what our traditions say, not the word of God, but their customs. And they try to pressure Zechariah to do what they want. And expect rather that than what God expects. Zechariah, however, will not be persuaded. He writes down what? His name is John. At which point his tongue is loosed and he can hear again. Now, this is what I especially want to draw your attention to before we move on. John's muteness and deafness came, of course, as divine discipline for his unbelief, right? Remember that in his encounter with Gabriel. Zechariah wanted a sign because of his unbelief, and so Gabriel gave him one, right? You want a sign? I'll give you a sign, right? And the sign was a form of discipline from the Lord by making him deaf and mute. But now consider the state that Israel is in and has been in for hundreds of years. Are they not mute? After all, they haven't had a prophet among them in over 400 years. And they have received not one new revelation from the Lord. <coughs> they haven't spoken a new word. They haven't offered anything from the Spirit to utter new divine truths about God's unfolding plan. They have been mute. But the people of Israel have also been deaf. Now, while it's true that God has not given them a new revelation over 400 years, the fact remains they have the entire what we call Old Testament. They have that. They have Genesis to Malachi. They have God's revelation so far. And thus they know of God's grace 
and how he expects them to respond and of what he plans to do in the world through the promised Messiah. And yet, John must come and preach repentance and a turning back to the way of God because the people have been deaf to God's already revealed word. And this will be a theme in Luke's gospel and in Jesus' ministry. The people are slow of heart. Even Jesus' disciples, deaf to what God has already said. And we know that even the religious leaders are ignorant and unfaithful. They are deaf to what God has said. And so Zechariah is the type of what Israel already is at the time. Do you see? I also want you to notice that in Zechariah's song, he's essentially giving a picture of God's plan of redemption in salvation history. Isn't he? That's pretty plain, right? You see how he traces through Abraham and David and the prophet. He is saying that the baby who is coming, this Jesus, is the fulfillment of salvation history. Everything promised, he's saying, in Abraham and David and the prophets and the whole Old Testament is pointing to this Messiah and they'll find their yes and amen in him. Zechariah is saying the interpretive key to your Old Testament is Jesus. Note this also. Luke bookends his gospel with this idea that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He does it here, right, through the Magnificat at the beginning of his gospel and through the Benedictus. And then I want you to leave your thumb in chapter 1 and join me in chapter 24. If you're in a scripture journal, it's page 172, okay? Look at Luke 24. This is how he bookends his gospel. I think this is pretty neat. So we have at the beginning this picture of salvation history. And now let's look at the end in chapter 24. (coughs) Do you remember this story? Right? There's these guys that are walking and talking post-resurrection. And uh, Jesus shows up and he's like, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, are you the only one in all of Jerusalem who doesn't know about the things that happened? And Jesus is like, what things? Right? And so they, they tell him of all the things that took place. They had, there was this guy. We thought he was the Messiah. We had our hopes rested on him. And we thought he'd finally save Israel and fulfill all of our hopes. And then Rome killed him. And some report that his tomb is now empty, but we don't know what's going on. So look at verse 25. What's Jesus say? Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the what? Prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Messiah, the Christ, should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And then what does Luke say? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all scripture the things concerning himself. They were deaf like Israel was deaf, but Jesus has come to open their eyes to reveal that God's plan of old was coming to fulfillment in him in their midst. This is what Zechariah pictures And this is what Zechariah reveals in his song. And Luke is screaming it to us by bookending his entire gospel with this thing. N.T. Wright says this, Zechariah's own story of nine months' silence, suddenly broken at the naming of the child, is a reflection on a smaller scale of what was going on in Israel of his day. Prophecy, many believed, had been silent for a long time. Now is going to burst out again to lead many back to true allegiance to their God. 
what had begun as a kind of punishment for Zechariah's lack of faith now turns into a new sort of sign, a sign that God is doing a new thing. Now you can turn back to Luke 1. But next, let's go to our point number two. <coughs> we see in Zechariah a picture of growth and humility. A picture of growth and humility. Do you imagine having nine months of silence? Parents are like, oh, yes, I can. And I imagine that all the time. Where you can speak or hear. What would you do with that time? You know, we find ourselves with nothing to do. Perhaps we find some free time, some decompression time. Uh, maybe we're sick and we just lay in bed for a few days trying to recover. We might fill those rare times by listening to music or binging some shows, right? Or movies on our favorite streaming service or catching up on a book we've been meaning to read. But what did Zachariah do? Zachariah used his time of silence to contemplate and grow. He seems a different man now, doesn't he? From the jabroni we met at the temple, questioning God if God could do things. He has come, he's become a more mature person since the last time we saw him in the temple. He confirms Elizabeth's insistence that the baby be named John because he is obeying the word of the Lord through Gabriel. Then he breaks forth in a song of praise that states more than even he can understand in the moment. Zechariah has seen the promises of God come to pass right before his very eyes, and he's different. He doubted, but then he saw Elizabeth's belly grow more and more, and here now he holds the son he previously thought he would never have. And now Zechariah has learned that God's promises are sure, that his goodness is true, and that things unfold in God's perfect timing, which are superior to ours every time. He has learned in a new and more profound way that God's word is worthy of trust. Zechariah learned from this period of silence. The sign of silence worked, didn't it? Even as an already righteous man, according to 1.6, he learned to trust God's word even more. <coughs> Just consider again, the fact that Zechariah, you agree with me on this, is the most religious person of all the characters we've met so far in Luke's gospel. Is that true? Most religious, most pious person we've seen so far. He's a priest. He serves regularly at the temple. He's an older man who is considered righteous in pursuit of God's commands. And yet, here he is, modeling a humble disposition of a continued willingness to learn. And grow. You know that's fair to say? In other words, Zechariah didn't look at his position or his title or his record of deeds or his age and rest content with where he was at. He didn't say, well, I'm righteous before God. I'm a priest. I'm old. I have nothing left to learn or accomplish. I can now coast. He didn't do that. He recognized through this discipline from the Lord that he still had much to learn. And I wonder... Do you recognize the same thing for yourself? Do you have a humble posture where you not only believe that you have much to room to grow and you live your life as if that's true? See, it's one thing to confess, yes, I have a lot to learn and grow. 
But it's another thing to actually do something in response to that. Or have you reached the unfortunate place where you believe you've peaked? And there's no more room to grow or learn in humility. Zechariah, yes, could have leaned on his past record of deeds, which he had a lot of, and accomplishments, which he had a lot of, and his titles, or his offices he's held, how much Bible he knows, his age, his standing in the community or culture, and, and learn nothing during these nine months. And I really wonder if we could do those kinds of things. Can we lean on our record? You ever list how much you've done for the church before to somebody? Or our accomplishments, what we've done in the past in the church, what we've done in the community, what people think of us and our respectability? And assume a posture that rests on our laurels rather than humbly and continually pursuing growth and knowledge in the Lord. Of course we can, right? Of course that temptation is always there. But do we have the humility to recognize that? And recognize the dangers of it? Not even Paul or the apostles got to a place where they thought they couldn't grow or learn or repent. Paul said at the end of his life, in his last letter before Rome separated his body from his head, that he was the chief of sinners, not chief of those crushing it. You know, surely you're familiar with C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters, yes? If you're unfamiliar, essentially the screw tape letters are a series of fictional letters written from a senior level demon named Screwtape to a novice demon named Wormwood, okay? And the purpose of the letters is to give the new demon advice on how to tempt the person he's been assigned, who he calls the patient. And he's trying to get the patient away from God, all right? In perhaps what I think is the most profound letter of them all, letter 12, Screwtape essentially tells Wormwood, Wormwood that if the person he has been assigned, the patient, falls into a religious rut, if he's content with the state of his growth, then Wormwood doesn't really have to even tempt him. Actually, he doesn't even need to worry about him being a regular churchgoer either, as long as the patient is fine with where he is. <coughs> if that's the case, Wormwood's work is easy. He says even if the man is uneasy, even if he, he doesn't think he's doing all that well, as long as he doesn't see his sin as sin and keeps things vague all is well. This is his vice. Just keep him distracted. Just point him to time wasters that don't draw him closer to God or point him to Christ. Point him to those time wasters that give nothing in return and they'll do the trick. Then he says this, all the healthy and outgoing activities which we want him to avoid can be inhibited and nothing given in return so that at least he may say, as one of my own patients said on his arrival down here, I now see that I spent most of my life in doing neither what I ought nor what I liked. He ends the letter with a line you may be familiar with, saying that the, the, the path away from God can start with the small things. Small habits, small sin, or neglect of spiritual disciplines that over time lead him away. Instead, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. 
and our experience speak to this. Yes? We know for a fact that the place we grow the least is in comfort. Is that true? Yet this is what we pursue. Even in the church. But we become contented with that and we fill our lives with time wasters of which there are more than even C.S. Lewis in his time. And we give ourselves away to things we don't really need. And those things push aside pursuit of the Lord and growth in him. Maybe all of this points to our contentedness with our current level of growth and knowledge of the Lord. Do you think that could be a possibility? If we were truly growing in the Lord, then what we'd realize more and more is how much growing there is to do. Do you also think that's fair? We should never be satisfied at our current level of growth or assume the posture of a rival or, or of comparison to others where we sort of rest content that at least we have done more or no more than this person or that. Growth in the Lord is towards humility and toward an even greater thirst to know God more. <coughs> God's plan for your growth is the local church. Do you know that? Which is why what we do here at FBC is thoughtfully and intentionally designed to help you grow in the Lord and knowledge of Him. We have Sunday school and corporate worship like this, and we have life groups and Wednesday night Bible study so that you can flourish in the Lord. But I wonder if our lack of tapping into those things isn't a subtle declaration of our satisfaction with where we are spiritually. Are you satisfied with where you are in your growth, friend? Are you? Because if I'm not mistaken, the gospel is so sweet that it ironically not only satisfies, but leaves us wanting more. And if that's the case, wouldn't we be ever diligent about tapping into the available means in the church wherein we could grow more and more have more knowledge of the beauty of this glorious Christ? Zechariah was in a great position, wasn't he? He's an old man and a priest, but even he slipped up and messed up, and even he needed to learn from the Lord, and so he did. He had the humility to not rest on his record or name or standing and to grow and learn. Humility, like we saw last week, is key to maturation, and as we mature, that humility doesn't fade. <coughs> on the contrary, we become humbler because we recognize who we truly are and have a larger sense of our desperate need for the mercy of Christ Ligon Duncan said this if you haven't cultivated gospel humility you haven't cultivated the queen of all gospel graces for the sure mark that the Holy Spirit has done a work in your heart is in the production of in you of gospel humility Zechariah has humility and you can tell this by his willingness to grow and be taught by the Lord. But also by the fact, did you notice, he includes himself with those who are in desperate need of salvation. He says salvation has visited us. He says that the Messiah is coming to redeem a people in darkness, <coughs> and he includes himself with those who are in darkness and who need the messianic light to save them. Zechariah knows his accomplishments aren't enough, not even his righteousness before the Lord, because he too needs what the Messiah will provide. 
Which leads us to our next point, point number three. What Jesus brings. What Jesus brings. So after this scene with the birth of John and Zechariah, uh, of, of Zechariah, Zechariah's tongue is loosed, right? The spirit fills him, is what we're told, and he gives this prophetic hymn from 68 to 79. The major, this is the major theme of this song, okay? God's redemption through the Davidic ruler. It's that simple. God's redemption through the Davidic ruler. And while the hymn does serve to answer the question of verse 66, and what John will do, the focus of the song is entirely on Christ. Yes? And what he will do, because even the mention of John's role in 76 and 77 relate to Jesus and what he will do as promised and coming Savior and champion and fulfillment of redemption history and king. <coughs> Look at your copy of God's word. I'm going to run through this song. Let's see what it says about Jesus. This song is soaked in mercy and self-awareness. Zechariah knows that people are in desperate need of verse 68, redemption. They're in need of verse 67, salvation. To be, verse 71, saved from enemies, both politically and spiritually, who hate them. To be brought into, verse 72, a covenant through the work of a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God, who, verse 73, swore an oath he intends to keep. Two, verse 74, save them from the wicked hand of their enemies to be provided with righteousness and holiness, verse 75, so that they can serve God all of their days. <coughs> that salvation cannot be accomplished without verse 77, the forgiveness of sins, which God, verse 78, provided because of his tender mercy and knows, verse 79, they sit in darkness in the shadow of death. Which is why, verse 78, the sunrise from the outside of us has visited us so that we can see his beauty and, verse 79, be guided into his way of peace forever and ever. All of it is about Jesus and all of it is about grace and mercy. And all of it is with an eye to the fact that people are in need of salvation from outside of themselves. That's clear, yes, here? You know, about 40 years ago, John Piper preached this text, and he offered this by uh, way of illustration. He said, if someone would have given me a guaranteed super-duper mousetrap for Christmas last year, I would have felt very little appreciation. We never had mice in our old house. If someone gave me a guaranteed to catch, to catch, get, catch a mousetrap this Christmas, I'd really feel appreciation because now we have got mice and I can't catch them all. If you offer me a quick ride after service to the emergency room at Metropolitan Medical Center, I'll think you are strange unless I see the gash in my arm or feel the severe pain in my abdomen. <coughs> then I would love you for your offer. If a police car screeches to a stop beside me on my way home from church some night and a man hollers for me to get in, I'll think he is putting me on unless I see the armed gang lurking around the corner. And so, he said, it is in all of life. We do not appreciate gifts that meet no need or satisfy no desires. We do not value or love an offer to help unless we know we are sick or endangered by some enemy. Vast numbers of people look upon Jesus and the Christmas story of his coming as a useless mousetrap, a crazy trip to the emergency room, 
a bothersome pickup by the police because they don't know that they have a terminal illness called unforgiven sin. And they don't believe in the fearful enemy, Satan. For them, the horn of salvation is a useless toy. For me, it is my only hope of recovery from this deadly disease of sin that infects my soul. And my only protection from Satan, the most dangerous external enemy of all. <coughs> Excuse me. Zechariah recognizes this, doesn't he? Perhaps more than he realizes. And we need to see this too. Zechariah's song is of no use to us. Nor is the story of Christmas if we do not see that we, just as much as Israel in 4 BC, were people in darkness in need of mercy and of redemption and of salvation and of rescue from our enemies. But we don't need what the world tells us we need to find those things. Why? Because none of what the world offers can do the trick. The world of self-help and the therapeutic, even some under the guise of Christianity, say that you can be your own champion. Isn't that true? Isn't that what the world tells us? <coughs> it says that the power lies within you. It says that meaning is found in pursuit of the more. It says the desire inside you are worth chasing you with all of your nut. My, just look at Christmas advertising. Who are smiley people in the commercials? Who are they? They're people who are given $80,000 trucks coming over the hill, powering through the snow, right? Or, or gifted a fat diamond, because that's where joy is found at Christmas or otherwise, according to the world. What does Zacharias say to that? He says, we were in darkness, and the only way we can have light is if it comes outside of us, in the form of a person who is a mighty Davidic king, who is a horn of salvation with which he vanquishes his foes, which include the foe that lies in each of our hearts and our sinful flesh. <coughs> we must recognize that we were broken before we could be restored. And we must recognize that the only restoration possible comes from God's Messiah, the Davidic king, the Abrahamic promise in human and divine form, the horn of salvation, the sunrise himself, Jesus Christ. Now, I open by mentioning Christmas movies, and who can forget the classic movie, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer? Do you guys like that movie? Do you? It's kind of overrated, isn't it? Um, remember in that movie, there's an island of misfit toys? Do you guys remember that? Basically, the, the, these toys are deficient in some way, and they're not good enough to be with the good toys. They're not good enough to be given to children on Christmas. And so they dump them on an island, Okay, originally, you know, the toys were shown on this island, and then you never see them again, right? Like, there's no resolution about them at all. Well, this led to countless people writing letters to NBC, asking the network to resolve that, what happens to these misfit toys. And this led NBC to actually change the movie to where Santa comes to get them, but it still doesn't show us, like, what he does with them. Does he take them back to the North Pole? Does he fix them? Does he deliver them to kids? We don't know. You know, the truth of the world is <coughs> we are like the misfit toys. But you know what? There are no good toys. There are only misfit toys. That's all there are. We are broken outside of Christ. Do you agree with this? But unlike cold-blooded Santa, 
in this Rudolph movie who dumps broken toys on an island and has to be convinced to go back and get them. We have in Jesus someone who entered into our island of misfit toys in order to heal our brokenness and put us back together because no one and nothing else could do it. We needed healing from outside of us. And Zechariah says that we have that. Verse 78, the sunrise has visited us. He literally has come to get us, to save us, to shine the light on us, to chase away the darkness, to guide us into the way of peace, namely to himself, because he is the embodiment of peace. If we aren't broken and stranded in a place where we need rescue, why would Zechariah use this language like salvation and redemption and mercy and a true king and deliverance and forgiveness of sin and light from darkness? We must recognize that there is a God and he is great, and then recognize that we are broken. But this isn't the end of the story. <clears throat> because we must also see the grace that has visited us in this child that Zacharias sings about. That he has come to make us one to restore us. But it's only when we realize that we are broken and we can't put ourselves back together that will cause us to run to this restoring, merciful, and powerful king who is in the bringing dead people back to life business. Don't you see how in verse 77, salvation is inextricably tied to forgiveness? Do you see that? Why? Because without forgiveness, there's what? No salvation. It's really that simple. If you want peace with God from verse 79, then you must have forgiveness of sins. And why would you need forgiveness if you were A, not a transgressor, or B, able to work your way out of debt? Clearly we need forgiveness, and clearly it must come from outside of ourselves. Zechariah is foreshadowing what John's, Jesus, and the apostles' ministries will emphasize, which is repentance and turning back to God. A turning back and a repentance that is ironically provided by God and only because of Jesus. And why did he do all that? Because verse 78. <coughs> What's it say? His tender mercy. You see that word tender? Make a note of that. That's the Greek word, splancha. It's like an onomatopoeia because it, it means what it sounds like. This is a deep-seated affection and compassion and that literally from the bowels is what this means from the guts this is why we are saved because God looked at us who were sitting in darkness and had compassionate mercy which sprang up from inside himself he saw us in our helpless state he saw that we sat not only in darkness but in the shadow of death but his love you understand is not one that merely looks and considers and does nothing. Like Santa's a weird peeping Tom, isn't he? He sees you when you're sleeping. Nobody's like, this is strange, right? <coughs> he knows when you're awake. If he sees you in trouble, what's he do? Nothing, right? He doesn't intervene. He just watches you. That's so weird. God's love is a love that moves. His love is a love that springs into action. His mercy is not mere pity that feels but does not act. 
He moves. Christmas tells us that he has literally come into the darkness. He has visited us, but the darkness did not overcome him because he is the embodiment of radiant light that chases away the deepest darkness, and he did that for you. His love is an acting love, isn't it? It's not a mere emotion. It's it's a love that acts, and I wonder, is your love that way too? Zechariah thinks we should see this glorious gospel and respond. (coughs) God saw us and had compassion from the guts, and he moved heaven and earth to get to you. So we too should see this gospel and act. Do you you agree with that? We should respond. This brings us to our, our final point, number four. And lastly, our response to what Jesus did is a whole life devotion and service. Our response to what Jesus did is a whole life devotion and service. I think that Zachariah makes this plain, don't you? What's verse 74 say? You see it? We have been delivered from the hands of our enemies. But why, Zechariah? To what end? What does it say? That we might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him. For how long? What's it say? <coughs> Look at verse 74 again. I'll wait. I got nowhere to be. That we might serve him Without fear, verse 74, in holiness and righteousness for all of our days. We're showing here something the New Testament echoes over and over again. That the goal of redemption is not solely for rest in heaven. Nor is it in order that we might have material prosperity. But that we might be free to serve God in holiness and reverence. Paul makes this point as plain as day, for example, in Ephesians 2.10. He says that we are saved by grace, not by works, lest we should boast. But we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Why? Do you remember the verse? (coughs) For good works which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. What other response to so great a gospel makes sense? The purpose of deliverance, says Zechariah, is to allow for continuous service before God. And is this not the essence of worship to respond to God's gracious grace and demands through all of our lives? Darrell Box says Zachariah, what Zechariah desires most is to be rescued from his enemies so that he could serve God his whole life without fear and in righteousness and holiness. Here is the pious person's creed. I want to serve you with my whole life, O Lord. Enable me to do so and vindicate me in my pursuit. Don't you see that when you realize everything that Zechariah says about what God is doing through Jesus, that we are actually free to serve? Unlike how many want to portray salvation, service to God, obedience to Christ's commands, following him actively with your whole life is not slavery, but freedom. (coughs) Slavery would be to serve Christ because you're trying to earn something. But if you know that Jesus saved us through his work and his pursuit and his tender mercy, then there should be no confusion in obedience. It is not to get saved. It is the logical response of the already saved. It's a misunderstanding of grace, a cheap grace 
that says Jesus calls for nothing in response to his gospel. The gospel is free, but it's not cheap. Zechariah actually rejoices that he is free to serve God, doesn't he? Like he's happy about it. Service thrills him. It doesn't burden him. He knows that if salvation is coming in the form of this person, (coughs) this long-awaited Messiah, the embodiment of sunshine, the horn of salvation, the Davidic king, that he gets the high honor of serving so great a God. How could service and life centered around him be viewed as anything but a privilege and honor in light of the truce in the Benedictus? We see here, especially in verse 79, that the Messiah's task involves guidance. And what is that guidance? It is a guidance in the way of peace and that consequence of deliverance is a full life which is able to serve God no matter what it costs because we do it as an overflow of tasted and experienced grace, not as some way to impress God or others. <coughs> I think of one of my favorite illustrations, which I haven't used in a while, but maybe you remember it. It's one by Charles Spurgeon called The King and the Carrot. You guys remember The King and the Carrot? This is how it went. He said, once upon a time in an old kingdom, there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot in his garden. Now, this man loved his king, so he came and presented the carrot to the king, saying, this is the best carrot my garden ever grew. Receive it as a token of my love. Now, the king discerned his heart and of his love and devotion and saw that the man wanted nothing in return. This moved the king, and then he gave the gardener far more land than he currently had for his garden, so the man went home rejoicing. Now, there's a nobleman in the court who overheard this exchange and thought to himself, if this is what you get for a carrot, what will he give me in response to an even greater gift? And so the nobleman went and got a horse, and he brought it to the king. And he said, this is the best horse my stables will ever grow. Receive it as a token of my love. But the king discerned the nobleman's heart, and in response, he just received the horse and said, thanks, bye. Well, when the king saw the look of confusion on the man's face, he said this, the gardener's gift was a gift indeed, out of love. But you're trying to make a profit. (coughs) He gave me the carrot, but you gave yourself the horse. Do you see? Salvation, the kind that Zachariah sings about, the kind that Mary sings about, the kind that Elizabeth rejoices over, the kind that we should sing and dance about, says that we are saved by God's tender mercy, which moved him to save us by his initiative and work and righteousness not done through an ounce of our contribution and such an incredible gospel such an astounding savior such a glorious god such an empowering holy spirit should drive us to service in freedom not because we're trying to get saved or accepted but because we already are saved we already are accepted by god in christ There's a big difference between those two, isn't there? We are a people who were sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death. But praise be to God, the song that Zachariah sings in the story of Christmas is that the sunrise has visited us from on high in a person named Jesus. And if we get this, if we get that God himself has entered our island of misfit toys, that he offers forgiveness of sin and to be our strength and to rescue us from our enemies, to give tender mercy, to shine the light on us, 
then we, like Zacharias, should rejoice and burst forth in unfettered praise and worship and other focused service because of so great a God and King. Don't you think? <coughs> the story of Christmas is familiar to you, surely. But what I'm asking you to do now, look again at the story of Christmas anew. See that there, this is no mere story. This is no mundane account. See it for what it truly is. This unbelievable message that Mary and Zachariah couldn't help but to sing about. And look at it with the fresh eyes of a child unwrapping the greatest gift in the history of the universe. Look at it again. See that God has moved heaven and we were sitting in darkness in the shadow of death by our own what we did, by our own works, by our own deeds and lack thereof. And this God who could crush us under his sovereign boot has looked at us with mercy from the guts and has moved heaven and earth to come down and get to you. And, and, and because no matter how hard you try, you can never climb up to him. And you look and see and wonder, it's so great a God and so great a gospel. Cast your eyes on the sunrise, the light that has visited us and has dispelled the darkness. And this Christmas and all throughout the year, joyfully heed the call to reflect the light to a world that still sits in darkness without hope. Because even though God doesn't need your service, your neighbor does. So show them the hope and point them to the light because there is no better way to live your life than for this baby who would come to free the world. Now allow me to close with this quote. Once more from Daryl Bach, he said, the question remains before us, how do we define life? Is it in power and ability to take control? Or is it in the following the one who is in control? The text leaves no doubt that we should follow the one who is the source of light. The only road to righteousness and peace, even for a righteous man like Zechariah, is to be prepared to see the light and follow it. The text raises the question and answers it with a note of praise. See the morning star Jesus and follow the light in the way of peace.